Good morning, church. Buckle up. You may have noticed in the last couple weeks, things have been a little bit more intense. And I will tell you that there is a reason for that. And that reason is because 2003 has seen here in the counseling office lots and lots and lots of people who are getting eviscerated by anxiety. We have watched people who are getting owned by pornography. We have watched people living with depression, figuring out how to quit living with depression. People who have been stuck in issues of substance abuse. People living in fear. And people living in absolute relational brokenness. Now here's what's interesting. <clears throat> we, have, uh, we have passages like Matthew chapter 6 that says, Do not worry about your life, but seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and everything that we need will be given to us. Who said that? Do you think he knows better than we do? And yet here we are, white-knuckling our way through life, gripping onto our meds to keep the anxiety down when the God of the universe told us you don't have to worry. Yeah, but Jesus just doesn't understand my situation. He doesn't know how hard my anxiety is. The God of the universe knows how hard your anxiety is. A lot of times we don't say amen because we don't believe that. We don't live like we believe it. Because if we believed it and if we lived like, like we believed it, then we would be getting past our anxiety. But boy, we clutch on for control, don't we? Our knuckles are turning white because if we just grip hard enough, we'll make ourselves safe. What a lie. You cannot grip on to life hard enough to make yourself safe. God makes us safe if we trust him. Instead of gripping so hard onto life, what would happen if we had our, our arms, just like what our worship team just played, and we had our arms extended to God, saying, God, please hold me. What a difference. What a difference. And then we read across something like Matthew chapter 11 where, where Jesus reminds us that everyone who is a child of God, who is weary and burdened, can come to Jesus and he will give them rest. Yeah, but I need that bottle because that's what's going to give me rest. Right? Right? I need my cigarette because that's going to give me rest. I need my sugar because that's what's going to give me rest. The one who said, I will give you rest, also said, I am gentle and I am humble in heart and I will give your souls rest. 
I will give your souls rest. Say it after me. I will give your souls rest. That's what Jesus is telling you. I will give you so, your souls rest. Not you. You will not give your souls rest. You cannot give your souls rest. You cannot. There's not enough drugs in the world to give your soul rest. There's not enough alcohol in the world to give your soul rest. There's not enough pornography in the world for you to make yourself, give yourself rest. There isn't enough because it wears off. And then you need another hit. And then you need another hit. He said, I am humble and I am gentle and I care about you. Let me comfort you. Let me comfort you. There's a passage in James chapter 1 that says when trials come, when trials come, not if, when trials come, we are to interpret those trials as opportunities to develop strength and perseverance and maturity. Not cop out and take a drink. Not cop out and take a smoke. Not cop out and eat to make myself feel better. We use those opportunities when things are hard to grow. A lot of us need to toughen up our souls. Because when things get hard, we tap out. And we go make ourselves comfortable. And then we allow ourselves to continue to be burdened. We continue to be in bondage to this enemy that we keep hearing about from week to week that wants to kill us. James 1 tells us to trust, to trust Jesus. And if we act in obedience to his word, he will walk us through our trials. He will walk you through whatever trial you're going through. He promises that he will. If he doesn't, he's a liar and we should be someplace else on a Sunday morning. And we will learn perseverance and that will lead us to our maturity. When we choose to do things the way God tells us to do, we will have peace and comfort and we don't have to white knuckle our control and grab onto life. Because the, the, the harder that we grab onto life, the higher our anxiety is going to be. So, how did we allow our hearts to determine that we can keep ourselves safer than the Creator can? How did we get there? How did you get there? If you're there, how did you get to that spot that made you think that you can control your life better than God can? This is exactly the wrestling match that Jesus began with the Pharisees when he removed the power of religious legalism that said, if I, if I do enough good stuff, if I perform perfectly, if, I, if all the things that Brian's gonna be taking us through here in just a minute, this is the wrestling match that Jesus started with these guys because your, your comfort and the strength of your heart has nothing to do with your performance with how good you can follow rules. It has nothing to do with that. And if we try to follow the rules, and if it's all about us following rules, we're going to live with, we're going to live in some, it's, well, it's just not going to be good. Okay, I'm going to stop talking. Brian, you, Brian, why don't you pick us up and take us through the first part of our, our segment. All right, thank you. 
Um, hi, I'm Brian. Um, <clears throat> so like Jim was saying, one of the ways that we tend to white knuckle is through this idea of legalism. And my first fill in the blank this morning is <clears throat> legalism leads to self-righteousness. We are going to pick up in Mark, uh, finish up Mark chapter 2 this morning, and then move on to chapter 3. Um, so we're going to start today, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. And it says, <clears throat> Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. What is the purpose of fasting? We as a church are right now in the midst of a time of fasting, so why are you doing it? <clears throat> What's the purpose of it? It's supposed to be a humbling experience, a reminder that we need to rely on God, not just ourselves. Um, in fact, in Psalm, Psalm 35, 13, David says, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. In Ezra 8, 21, he says there by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us, our children, and all of our possessions. So when it comes to fasting in this situation, you see two groups that were fasting and, and came to ask Jesus. One of them was John's disciples. Those be, that would be John the Baptist. John the Baptist's disciples fasted because his ministry stressed repentance. Repentance. Repentance is a humbling experience itself. So fasting would be a very appropriate form of worship for them. But what about the Pharisees? What did they do to the act of fasting? Their tradition had added various fasts throughout the fast to scripture. They were well known to fast twice a week and were very strict about it. In fact, if you want to know, specifically they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Legalism will elevate your actions over your heart. Through the elevation of their act of fasting, they lost sight of the true purpose of fasting. They felt it was an expression of piety to fast. They seemed to, and they also seemed to make sure everyone knew that they were doing it. So that way they could see just how godly they were. These people took an act of worship meant to humble themselves, and they flipped it completely on its head. Jesus even spoke out against this kind of a thing in a parable in Luke. It's Luke 18. 9 through 14. Let me read that real quick. Uh, Luke 18, 9 through 14. <clears throat> to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I have. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Last week we talked about tax collectors. So similar to that discussion about Jesus eating with the sinners and tax collectors, the fact that Jesus and his disciples weren't fasting seemed to fly right in the face of the entire worldview of what people thought of as godly. When questioned about it, what did Jesus do? He used an example of a wedding. Weddings are a time of rejoicing. Many rabbis taught that during a, back then they had a week-long celebration for a wedding, and they taught that during that week, joy was more important than the observance of rituals. In fact, fasting instead of rejoicing would have been quite offensive to the host. <laughs> so Jesus' message here is twofold. When in his presence, it is a time of joy and celebration. And he's also hinting towards his death and being taken away from them. So now let's jump ahead a little bit. We're going to come back to, to the end of uh, this part here, but, but before we do that, we're going to jump ahead to Mark, 20, Mark 2, 23 through 28. Um, but my next fill in the blank is, legalism leads to a lack of empathy. All righty, Mark 2, 23 through 28. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of God is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus can be funny sometimes, because uh, one of the things that pops out right away is his response, Have you never read? To the Pharisees, that would have been extremely insulting, because they spent pretty much all their time reading, <laughs> reading the old scriptures. So I thought that was funny. Um, <clears throat> but moving on, a quick call out about what was going on here as the disciples were walking through and picking the heads of grain. This was something that was not wrong for them to do at all. In fact, if you look in Deuteronomy 23:25, it specifically calls this action out as okay. It says, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you, not, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. The issue here was only about what day of the week they did this on. At the time, at this time, rabbis had added a number of elaborate rituals related to the Sabbath. Here's some of the things they taught. A man could not carry something in his right hand or in his left hand across his chest or his shoulder, but you could carry something with the back of your hand, however that works, with your foot, with your elbow, in your ear, with your hair, or lack thereof, <laughs> or the hem of your shirt, or your shoe, or your sandal. You were forbidden to tie a knot, except 
women could tie a knot on her girdle. So, if a bucket had to be raised from a well, you could not tie the rope to the bucket, but a woman could tie her girdle to the bucket. <laughs> Ridiculous, right? I know, right? So, what does the law of Moses actually say? Exodus 20, 8 through 11. I think I've got it up here. Yep. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Any mention of a girl in there? No, I didn't see any either. <clears throat> so it's worth pointing out, Jesus never violated God's command to observe the Sabbath, or, and he didn't approve his disciples to violate God's command to observe the Sabbath. But something he often did, sometimes deliberately it seems, is he broke man's legalistic ad additions to the law. In this situation, Jesus uses a story from the Old Testament to show an important principle. Human need takes precedence over legalistic religious ritual. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. When you're steeped in legalism, this can sometimes be hard to accept. But we have to remember that loving others is more important than religious rituals. And that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So now we're going to move on to Mark 3 and my next point. Legalism leads to stubbornness. <clears throat> Mark 3, 1 through 6. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them <clears throat> in anger. <clears throat> Hang on. <laughs> he looked around at them in anger and, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and the hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So here we see more of the same. The Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus in the act of breaking more of their traditions. At this time, life-saving procedures were acceptable on the Sabbath, but other medical treatments were up for debate. They couldn't even agree amongst themselves. Jesus handles this situation perfectly. When Jesus asked them what... Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Jesus' reaction to them is very interesting to me. First, he was angry. Then he was deeply distressed, or some translations use the word saddened, at their stubborn hearts. You see, these are a people group who should have gotten it. They should have been first in line to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. But their devotion 
to their rigid, legalistic tradition kept the scales over their eyes, making them unable to see who and what Jesus was. Jesus is pretty slick here. Technically, he doesn't provide any medical treatment here. He doesn't even touch the guy. All he does is say, stretch out your hand, and the man was healed. Stretching out your hand would not constitute work, but even though he did not do that, the Pharisees still planned, still began to plot on how they might, would, might kill Jesus. And it is absolutely crazy that they would team up with the Herodians to do it. The Herodians were not a religious party. They were a group of Jews who were sympathetic to the rule of King Herod. The Pharisees were literally going to the literal enemy to protect the traditions that they clung on to. Now let's jump back to the verses we skipped over earlier. This would be Mark 2, 21 through 22. And my next fill in the blank. Jesus leads to something new and powerful. Uh, 22, or 2, 21, 22. No one sews a patch of unshrunk, unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. These two examples Jesus is making make a very clear point. <clears throat> the new life that he offers will not fit into the old forms. Jesus traded fasting for feasting, tradition for grace, condemnation for healing. As wine ferments, it expands, leading to the skins being pushed to their limits. An old skin would never contain new wine for very long. Jesus came not to patch up something old, but rather to introduce something new. And what is this new thing? This is salvation. Jesus didn't destroy the old law. He fulfilled it and brought it back to its original intent. He removed from it years of tradition and legalism. Legalism is one of the craftiest tools the enemy has. It can be used as a stronghold of oppression while at the same time tricking you into believing you're doing God's will. Beyond the things we've already discussed, it can also lead to judgmentalness, writing off people uh, who aren't living up to your man-made standards. But legalism, strangely enough, legalism can also be comforting. Why is it such an effective, why is it such an effective stronghold for the enemy? Because it comforts us. We, we feel that white knuckle we think we can take control of our situation. Using repetition, rules, and a generous amount of superstition, we trick ourselves into thinking things like, if I fast twice a week, if I spend all my time trying to follow the letter of the law, exactly, or if I pray these exact words, then magically it will work out the way I want it to do. The focus on doing doesn't take into account your heart or the motivation behind why you are doing it. This is an, ex an exhausting way to live. Legalism is a yoke of slavery that more often than not will eventually lead to deconversion because it just doesn't work that way. And once someone realizes that they've dedicated so much energy into something that isn't real, 
it's hard to untangle the truth from myth. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. So how do we know what is true biblical teaching versus what's the tradition of man? How do we, how do we always counter lies? With truth. Truth is not found in the rules of society or in legalism. Truth is found right here. This is why we have to be in our Bibles. How can we exercise discernment when someone says, Thus saith the Lord, if we don't know what the Lord hath saith? <laughs> and a good rule of thumb, <clears throat> a good rule of thumb, if someone is using the law to oppress someone else, it's not of God. Also, check your heart. What's your motivation? Why do you try to keep the Ten Commandments or the teachings of Jesus? Why are you fasting? Why do you give money to the church? Is it because someone, somewhere, sometime told you that's what good Christians do? Is it a box to check off? Or is it an act of worship, a way to draw closer to God, and a way of saying thank you to Jesus? I would argue that for a sincere follower of Jesus, it's less about what you do and more about why you are doing it. And never forget grace. The law shows us our sin. We're all going to screw up. We all sin. Jesus calls us to repent and turn to him. Only through his grace can we find true righteousness. Grace is the enemy of legalism. Yeah, and as we are, as we're just considering this idea of, um, of, of being in bondage to, um, to something like legalism, um, let's take a look. Let's keep on rolling here um, in Mark chapter 3. Because as we, so. <clears throat> Am I muted? Is that better? Hello? There we go. There we go. Thank you. Gotcha. Okay. <clears throat> well, let's actually, let's go to our, our next fill in the blank, which is this. Am I afraid of my own testimony? That one is awfully, awfully important because as we are living, as we are, as we are trying to unburden ourselves from the different areas of, of, um, of bondage that we might be in, uh, would anyone believe you that you have faced down the presence of evil in your home or in your mind? Some people... There's some of us in this room that have experienced that. You have faced down the presence of evil in your home. You know what that's like. You know what that feels like. But if I tell people, they're going to think I'm crazy. Or, or would people think that you're dirty or damaged goods if they knew the sins that you've been delivered from in your past? If people were to know what is in your past... Would they say, nah, I want nothing to do with you. You're too messy. And then, if that is something that brings fear in us, 
What does that do with our ability to, when people come across our paths that need to hear a message of being forgiven and being delivered, that we can bring them because we've experienced that. But if I'm afraid to let people know what's happened in my past, I am now going to be, I'm now not going to be effective in sharing God's love with someone who has experienced the same thing because I'm afraid of what people are going to think of me. Would you be afraid of the shame that might come if people knew about the family situation you grew up in and the things that you witnessed? I don't want anybody to know. Let's take a look at, because this is something that Jesus can actually uh, relate to. We can relate to Jesus in this way. Let's come back to, to Mark chapter 3. In verse 20, um, Mark 3.20 says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. His mother, who was there when God put a baby inside of her that no man had anything to do with, is now feeling like she needs to step into Jesus' life and say, I need to take over because you're, you're, you're going off the rails here. Jesus dealt with peer pressure too. He had family members that said that he's not right. We keep going. Not only is his family coming against him, the teachers of the law, in verse 22 who came down from Jerusalem, said he is possessed by Beelzebub, who is, it's another name for Satan, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Again, he's got now not, ju not, his, not just his family, but also the religious leaders that said, this guy is possessed. This guy has an evil spirit inside of him. He's got people from all sides saying that he shouldn't be saying what he's saying. If that's you, if you have lived through that and you've had family members that said, that, that question you and, and come against your faith, I want you to, let's take a look at what, um, what this next fill in the blank says. It says, do I know and understand scriptures that can point people to the truth? When we have people that are coming against this, that are suggesting that we need to shut up or we don't know what we're talking about, when we are living in the truth, the more, the, the more comfortable and the more we, we know God's word, the less impact those people's voices are going to speak into our lives. Because the confidence that we're going to have rests in the fact that we believe the truth, we know it's the truth, and we're living the truth. If I'm not in my scriptures, if I don't know the truth, then my ability to be, to be confident when people come against me is going to be very low. And my ability to be a strong witness is also going to be very low. I have to understand what scriptures say. And I gotta know why I believe what I believe. I've gotta be sold out completely. And this is something that Pastor Tim and Nikki have taught us for a long time, the importance of hiding the word of God in our hearts. So when we understand what God's word teaches, we are informed concerning what's happening around us. So Jesus continues on, and he goes into a parable. It says this in verse 23. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables, 
How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So we see a picture of a kingdom, large, you know, big area. In that whole kingdom, if, if there is civil war in that kingdom, that kingdom is going to be compromised, correct? Yes, that kingdom is going to have a hard time standing firm because it's fighting with each other. Now, he, then he keeps on going. If, uh, if a house is divided against itself... That house cannot stand. So in a kingdom, you normally have where the palace, where the king's at. If there is fighting in that, in the, in that palace, the palace is not going to be able to stand because they're fighting against each other. He keeps going. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. So we have this picture of, of a kingdom and within that kingdom, we have a picture of a house, and then we have a picture of the leader of the house. He's making the, he's making the, the teaching here. There is this being called Satan. He has his own little area, but he is also in charge of a whole lot of other stuff. And what he has done from a lot of us, he has stolen a lot of our stuff. He has stolen a lot of your stuff. He can steal your calling if you let him. He can steal your confidence. He can steal your innocence. He can steal your ability to walk in obedience to God because of the voices that he has spoken through other people into your life. You know where he's got it? In his house. He's got it in there. Your stuff that, that you've allowed him to take, he's still got. But you want to hear some good news? Yes was the right answer. You want to hear some good news? Yes. There is really, really good news here. And let's see this. It says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Guess what? You can rob the strong man's house if you want to. You can do that. You have the power to bind up the strong man if you want to. If we want to quit getting our butts kicked, and allowing the enemy to continue to take and take and take, we can go back into his house and take back what he's taken from us. You... <laughs> Folks, I... if this isn't exciting to you, I would suggest that you... you I don't know if you're drunk. Because this is good news. This is the potential of your life that has been robbed if it has been robbed and you can have it back. You can have it back if you want it. You have to learn how to take what has been taken from you. Do you want to know how to take it back? The way you take it back is you recognize the lies that have been spoken over you. That's that negative junk that keeps going through your mind that says you're worthless, that says you're weak, that says you don't have a chance, that says that nobody cares about you, that says that your family was a disaster and you're just as big as a disaster as they are. That is the stuff that gets spoken into our minds and when we recognize that that stuff doesn't have to stay, we can shut it down. The way you shut it down is by using God's word. 
Now, for those of us that have been here a long time, we got a real good strategy that we talk about a lot. And the strategy is when those negative thoughts are going through our minds, what are we supposed to do? We take those thoughts captive, which is just such a simple prayer. The simple prayer says this, God, I take that thought captive. Say it after me. And I make that thought obedient to Christ. God, I take that thought captive. And I make that thought obedient to Christ. If you're not willing to use that prayer to shut these negative thoughts down, you are choosing to allow the enemy to keep taking your stuff. He's given us that as a strategy to use, to take it back. So we have this picture. That's how we bind the strong man. Because he's just going to keep on reaching. He's going to keep dropping those thoughts into our minds. You don't have to keep letting that happen. If you deal with a poor self-image, you don't need to live that way. You don't need to see yourself as worthless. It's a lie. You don't have to see yourself as weak, as helpless, as hopeless. It's a lie. If that's true, then we need to be someplace else on Sunday morning. We need to sleep in or something. Heather's going to come up. I want Heather to share a little bit. Um, this is Heather Mead. Uh, Heather uh, went through Equip uh, a couple years ago. She's now teaching with, with Brian. And Heather had some things that were taken away from her. And I wanted her to share with you what, yeah, you could. I want her to share with you what was taken away from her. Go ahead. So, all my life, I have been fearful and I've lived in anxiety. And so, the enemy just took away my peace. He took away who I am in Christ and who God is. He took God off the throne of my life. I replaced, I shouldn't say he did. I replaced God with Satan and his lies. And he then worked his little thing on me. And I, everything I did filled me with anxiety. Did I say the right thing? Did I do the right thing? I can't go there. I can't do that. And it was so bad that I didn't realize how much was stolen from me. I needed my husband a lot of times just to calm me down because I would just have a panic attack out of nowhere. No reason for it. It would just happen. And I would need my husband to help me and calm me down. My husband can't always be there for me, but God can. And there was one day it got so bad that I realized I cannot pass semis on a road. And I am the driver in our house because I get extremely car sick. So I'm always driving. I can get car sick with me driving. And so one day we had to drive, and I realized I can't do it. I can't pass them. And I was staying behind the semi, and I thought I was protecting myself. I thought I was protecting my family. And... Uh, Really, I wasn't. I was creating a situation that could have endangered my family. It could have endangered those on the road because I was having panic attacks driving. And so in Equip, God got a hold of me, and he started speaking to me about it. And when I talked to Jim about it, 
I realized that my trust was not in God. My trust was in me and my control. My trust was in what can I do to keep me safe? What can I do? And God's like, it's not about you. It's about me. I will keep you safe. I have gone before you and I go behind you. I head you in. I have you in my hands. I have good things for you. And I will take whatever you do, any mistakes that you make, because you will fall short of the glory of God. And I will take those mistakes and I will use them for my glory. I will be your light. He is my shining star that guides me during the day. But he is also my footpath that shows me each step of the way. And I gave him control and I started doing it by capturing my thoughts. And he tested me on that right away. Like that, like literally we had Saturday our equip class. And then that day my husband and I um, had to go to Strongsville. Normally my drive to Strongsville is not bad. Believe it or not, there's not a lot of semis when we would go. And I felt fine driving. But that day I'm serious. There were so many semis on that road. I was terrified. And I realized right away what was happening. And I took those thoughts captive and I gave them to God and I passed that semi he said I told you to go you go and so I went and he does it every single day whatever is put in my life whatever challenge whatever thing that he wants me to do he says go and I don't have to live in that fear and anxiety that I'm going to mess it up I don't have to live in that fear and anxiety that's going to hold me back from accomplishing what he has because I know my identity is in Christ. I am his child. And when I accepted him, he gave me his spirit, which is not a spirit of fear, but is a spirit of power. It is a spirit of grace and mercy. And it is a spirit that can tell the enemy, you cannot be here in my life. You need to flee. He gave me everything that I need. I just need to give it to God. I just need to lay it down. Because his burden is light. I don't have to worry about anything. He clothes me. He provides for me every single day. I just take my thoughts captive, and I turn them over to him, and I make them obedient. And I fill my life with his word. And he gives me that word that I need in that situation. He has never failed me, and he will never fail me. He is now rightly where he belongs, and I keep him there on my throne. His throne. That's a choice. Every day, this is a choice. This is a choice whether you are going to pick up your armor and fight or whether you are going to choose to get your butt kicked. This is your choice. We all get to choose whether we are going to walk in victory or whether we're not. So, if you want to learn how to fight, I want you to do this. We're going to do a little inter interactive thing here. I want you to take your pen. I want you, to do, I want you to jot a couple notes down. I want you to isolate, identify one or two or three of those negative thought patterns that, that tend to go through your mind often, whatever those are. Take 30 seconds right now. Write it down. Write it down on your, on your little piece of paper there. Or get it into your mind. What are those negative thought patterns that own you, that you allow to own you?
You got that? What is the process then? I want you to I want you to say I want you to look at that, get that thought in your mind, and I want you to say I take that thought captive and I make that thought obedient to Christ. Whatever those things are, every single time those thoughts go through your mind, every time, every time, every time those thoughts go through your mind, you take those thoughts captive. You pray that. That is God's word. That comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. You are praying God's word when you pray that. That there is power in God's word like there's no power in anything else that we will ever pray like God's word. So when you are praying God's word, just it's, it's going to work. I can't tell you how many times in the counseling office I, I, we, someone goes and they're doing this for a week, they, can't, they come back, I can't believe it. It worked. Yeah, because that's what God said to do. Otherwise, we shouldn't be listening to him. Whenever these negative thoughts go through your mind, God, I take those thoughts captive. I make those thoughts obedient to you. Then, if we don't, if we don't put anything back in because we're making a vacuum, if we're going to get the old stuff out, we've got to put something else back in because what's going to happen if we don't? Stuff's going to come back. We're going to continue to fight the same battle over and over and over and over. You don't have to keep fighting the same battle over and over and over. We learn the skill to fight, and then we don't have to keep fighting the same battle. So we take these thoughts captive, and then we replace it with something like, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, because your heavenly fathers knows that you need them. So we replace the negative junk with truth. I get rid of the old. I let my mind come back to the true. My mind gets then tethered to the truth. And when the junk comes, my mind says, no, 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 no. The truth says, I need to do this. And then I obey, and God comes through, and then he teaches me, indeed, that he is enough. That he will do what he says he will do. But if we don't do our part, he doesn't get to do his part. We have to obey. We got to go by the plan that our commander-in-chief has given to us. God, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that you, that you care about us. We are so grateful that you are a God of all power. We are grateful that you walk with us, that you promise to be with us, that you promise to never leave us. We are, we are so grateful that your power is greater than anything else, than anything else. And we are so grateful that you choose to be our Heavenly Father and you adopt us into your family so that everything, all the good gifts that you have for us are available 
to us and all we have to do is open our hands. Lord, I pray that you would, I pray that you would empower every single person here with this understanding that they don't have to live under the control of the strong man, but that you are the strong man. You are the true strength. So God, please, please, as we, as we finish up our time together with this worship song, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us very clearly. Help us to recognize your voice and empower us to turn to you in some new ways. In your name, amen.